to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin, and Anna Chizinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Chizinski. My fact this week is that in Amsterdam, the roads are paved with used toilet paper. It's not um, as catchy as gold. <laughs> yeah, Dick Whittington is very different there. <laughs> and this is a really cool thing, actually. So uh, the road constructor in the Netherlands called KWS has realised that to make a kind of improved version of tarmac, it can use the cellulose that it gets from recycled toilet paper. So the toilet paper goes into the sewage system, you flush it into the sewage system, and then they basically put it through kind of a sieve, which gets the poo out oh that's that's important that's that's a really important stage of this whole process it is you don't want to be driving on poo no but or walking walking. no or Um, crawling on it after a night out in amsterdam no (laughs) none of those things so there's no poo in it it's just uh paper and it thickens it apparently so and it makes it uh better absorbing water so it improves it's like water wicking away from the surface of the road Mm. so it makes the roads less slippery and apparently it reduces noise as well it's yeah. very quiet oh, yeah. if you're walking on loo roll. Great. That makes sense. So mm. what's it mixed with? It's not just the toilet paper that's just laid down. No, it's with asphalt. <laughs> it's the usual Okay, so it's right. usual ingredients. I found a fact about what else you can make a road out of. You can make a road out of rubber, which is cool. Mm. Yeah. So it's like the whole road is made of tires. Wow. Does that if you were walking on that, do you think it'd be easier to walk because you could kind of bounce around? I think oh, so, yeah. yeah. They have used tyres, by the way, not just rubber, but actual ground-up tyres. Sorry, this is this is what I mean. Yellowstone. They're exactly that. Oh, I didn't know it was in Yellowstone. Oh, yeah, in Yellowstone, yeah. they partnered up with um, Michelin, I believe it was, and they, um, they've, they yeah, been grinding up the tyres. Well, but then the tyres the on the cars are basically riding over their dead comrades. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a bit depressing, isn't it? <laughs> Very dark. <laughs> um, um, is it... Uh, is it the case then that we can just put anything in the roads? Should we just be putting everything we don't need in the roads? So far we've got plastic rubber, yeah. toilet paper. <laughs> Nuclear waste. Nuclear waste. What are we doing? Why Why is there even rubbish? Every time you chuck a packet out of the car, just say, I'm not littering, I'm tarmac. You <laughs> <laughs> cigarette butts. Oh, well, uh, do you know, this is a weird thing. Lots of uh, roads in London used to be paved with wood. Mm. And that was good, partly because it was quieter under horses' hooves. Mm. Uh, and also... It was less slippery, but it did have downsides because it would soak up horse urine and then if a heavy wagon passed over, it would just squirt horse urine. (laughs) That is a downside, isn't it? Um, A place that has some quite exciting roads is Vermont. So Vermont is covered in invisible roads. (laughs) Sorry? Covered. Covered. Covered in non-existent roads. And it was causing a major problem. So basically, Vermont is the only state where if a road has ever been um, built or even planned or, you know, someone suggested that we might put a road here, it goes down legally as a recognised road and it can never be undone. So mostly a road is discontinued legally after a few years if it's not being used. So if you look at sort of old maps of Vermont, it's just the whole thing is just roads. And that means because roads are public highways, that means that you can have your house. 
that's probably on an ancient byway of some sort and people could just wander through your house any time of day because they can say, look at this old map from 1790. No. This used to be a road. And people were getting really annoyed with this. So I think they've actually had to address it. There was a law in, that came out in about 2009 which said, OK, guys, you've got to stop claiming there's an old road here so you can walk into this person's drawing room. And places were told to claim their roads or lose them by 2015, I yeah. think. It's only that one guy who goes, ah, excuse me, there used to be a road here. Yeah. He's got a million maps in bags. Yeah. <laughs> I've got it here somewhere. <laughs> Um, do you know how white lines on roads came about according to the internet? So I would say it's to make sure that people stay on their side of the road. It was that, yes. Oh, right. um, but they were invented, well done, <laughs> 10 points. Uh, they were invented in 1911 in Michigan by a guy called Edward Hines. And this is just the kind of thing that with research is so annoying because um, the Michigan Department of Transportation and all these books say Edward Hines at the time, he was chairman of the County Board of Roads and he came up with the idea of putting white lines in the middle to stop cars just driving in the middle of the road. He came up with the idea after watching a leaky milk truck make its way down the road. <laughs> now you read that and you're like, that's obviously not true, is it? He just thought, because the question is, why, always, not? why did he choose white? Well, because yeah. obviously you just choose white on black. Because you? if it was like a leaky chocolate milkshake truck, <laughs> we would have brown lines. <laughs> There's just and there's no evidence for it. I always wonder who comes up with these things first. Who decides? Did he not claim? I thought he had claimed that he saw no. spilt milk. And well, he... there's certainly no evidence online really? of him crying over spilt milk. <laughs> Let's make a line out of it. But you this. say white being the obvious. But so at the time when they officially recognised that yes, we want to put this on all the roads in America, and white was picked. Oregon said we want to do it in yellow, and they thought that that was a much better colour. Someone and... saw someone pissing on a road. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but they eventually did change it to yellow strips in America for the center parting yeah. of a road. Oh, is it yellow in America? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Oregon get, was right. You get yellow lines here and then red lines, which are the really serious ones. Mm. So there are. The really what, are, what are the serious ones? <laughs> I don't drive, so I don't. I red don't lines know. on a road re mean really don't park here. Yeah, yellows means, mean you're probably fine. Right, okay. It's a road, which means like you're not. It's roads going in and out of big cities where you really do not want anyone ever parking there. Te technically, on a yellow lines, you can park there for like ten minutes if okay. you're loading or unloading. Is that so? Yeah. Someone swatted up for their theory test, didn't they? Years ago. <laughs> I can see you failing it. Well, technically, though. Uh, technically, uh, we I am allowed to drive through this man's front room. Oh, man. Who wants to take the QIL on his next driving exam? <laughs> Jesus. Um, something I've always found really amazing about road surfaces is a fact about bitumen which I remember finding this out in the end series when I was researching the Nabataeans, who were this amazing Middle Eastern civilization. But basically, the reason they were the, like the richest civilization uh, from about 500 BC to 200 BC um, in Arabia, and they got rich by selling tarmac. And the way they got tarmac was they were near the Dead Sea, and this weird thing happened when, when there was an earth tremor of some sort, huge amounts of bitumen would just suddenly bubble up to the surface of the Dead Sea. Wow. So these massive islands of bitumen just appeared and they would sit there like the size of houses. And then the Nabataeans would just row or swim out to them, climb onto them and hack the bitumen off and then go and sell it. And they sell it to the Egyptians who used it in embalming and they became super rich. And I just find that whole thing like islands of tarmac That's suddenly floated up. And I think the word mummy comes from bitumen because of that. Oh, thing, I does think. it? I think so. Isn't it comes from know. a word for bitumen? Yeah, yeah. I wonder why it stopped. Presumably, it stopped. I think they ran. I think it ran out. Wow. 
I think they they got all of it. They scavenged all the all the bitumen. Speaking of things that came out of the ground unexpectedly, um, <laughs> such strong links. <laughs> uh, a man in the Dutch city of Amsterdam has recently been injured after a pop up public toilet that was sunk into the ground emerged unexpectedly. <laughs> The man was hit by a moped, which was thrown up in the air. <laughs> wow. So there's like a toilet that just comes out at night for yeah. revelers and stuff like that. And they keep it underground normally. But it just for some reason, it just popped up. And there was a moped on top of it and it flew in the air and it hit this guy. Wow. wow. So cool. Um, <laughs> How fast do they pop up? It's <laughs> blows, they spring yeah. out around like a jack in a box. That's amazing. That's terrifying. <laughs> I've got a fact about toilet paper, actually, while mm. we're on toilets. Oh, yeah. This is another thing you can make toilet paper out of. You can make it out of milk. What? Yeah. The, there's a, a company, I think it's a German and an Italian company. They teamed up. One made fabrics and one knew it was a design company or something. Anyway, it's a, they made this thing which is called Carezza di Latte, which is milk caress. And it's a, it uses a protein which they extract from soured milk. So it's all waste milk. It's mm. if the cow has been ill and you can't sell the milk to customers. That's not how you get sour milk. You get no, sour no, milk no, no. by having normal milk and it going off. It's not like, oh, this milk is off. It must have been a sick cow. <laughs> Sorry. They take the normal milk from sick cows and then it sours. All right. Okay. Sorry, they're separate things. Um, but it's so it's waste milk. So the farmers can sell it for a very small amount, not for the drinking milk price. But then you can turn it into toilet paper, which I guess you can also eat. So you can, if you're hungry on the loo, you can just eat a bit of this milk but toilet paper. But it's from a paper. sick cow. It's I don't want to eat milk, <laughs> milk loo roll from a sick cow. But wait, is milk, is milk bad if it's from a sick cow? Yeah, that was, that was another thing I was thinking. Like, I'd never thought of that. Yeah. It depends how sick, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, it depends what's in the depends what bacteria. If it has in the mastitis, milk. for instance, yes, so the, the then milk that might is, be bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, if it's communicable to humans, then it's a problem, isn't it? It's weird, Amsterdam. So that toilet, I've never seen the the one, you, James, you were talking about earlier that comes through the ground. Well, that's a problem. You don't see it. You don't see until it. Until the last minute. <laughs> yeah. And it's and they're very, they're, they're good. They're good for women. They make them, uh, so the ones in London that you see are purely urinals for men. Uh, but these ones can be used by women. And they've just, they seem to have innovations for toilets that are um, sort of groundbreaking. There's an amazing one. You guys remember Literally. the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, in that case, yeah. The, um, remember the little fly that got used on oh, a yeah. urinal for men? Yeah. So the idea is that a urinal would have a little drawing of a fly in the center of it, and that would encourage men to try and aim to, to hit the fly. I saw that, but unfortunately there was also a fly in the room flying around. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of chased him around with a jet of urine. It was, that was not pretty. <laughs> Not welcome back to that restaurant. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was that was debuted in the nineties in Amsterdam's airport. Yeah, and, Schiffel, wasn't it? Yeah, in Schiffel, yeah. Um, and that's now used globally to help wow. the reduce spillage that happens in a lot of bathrooms. That's good. Yeah. The Netherlands making waves in toilets, basically. <laughs> I think we've learned from this. Another bit of Netherlands toilet technology. Oh yeah. Rotterdam has a revolving toilet. <laughs> well, that sounds extremely disconcerting. <laughs> Can you think you of what that? that might be? Is it, so, a, pub, is it a pub? Is it a public so toilet? Yeah, it's not in a revolving restaurant. Nope. Okay. Is it because they couldn't afford a door, so it's a way of turning your back on people <laughs> while you wee, so That's they can't see you? Really good idea. They'd still be able to see the back of your head. Oh, does it have a big sail on top, and whichever wind direction is prevailing, <laughs> the toilet faces that way? For what reason? So that the wee doesn't blow back in your face. Exactly that reason. <laughs> no, not that. Uh, it's because it's got two toilets in it, and so you use one of them, 
and then you walk out and there's a detection that can tell there's no person in it and then it flips around the two toilets and it can clean the other one while the oh, other toilet okay. so the previously clean one is now in that place do you know what I mean? Yes, yeah. Does that make sense? So yeah, is yeah. that while I'm inside one toilet, is someone else going to be cleaning that other toilet and I have to wait for them to finish that? I think it's kind of robotic cleaning. Right, okay. So yeah, so you're there and you use the toilet and then you leave and then it flips around so there's now a clean toilet there and the old one is being cleaned by a robot or something. That's great, it's not a human. Imagine it turning around and you're just hearing a voice go, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. One frequent result of winning the lottery is going bankrupt. This also applies to people who just live near people who have won the lottery. Very good. So mm. it's so unfair. What it mean? Neighbours of lottery winners tend to go bankrupt, basically. It's doubly unfair, isn't it? Yeah. Really? Why? Well, because you've not won the lottery and you've gone bankrupt. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is doubly unfair. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Um, so why? Why? Yeah. Well, there's a there's a study that's been done by uh, researchers at the University of Alberta in Canada and Georgetown, and they studied a Canadian province which had 7,000 lottery winners. And what they found was in areas where people have won the lottery, the bankruptcy rate goes up by 6%. And this might be because people keep it a secret, the fact that they've won the lottery. So people borrow more around them mm. because they want to keep up with the Joneses, as it were. They think, oh, wow, they've got a yacht. Uh, so they think, we better get a yacht. And they start borrowing more money and then they take more Why do more we need that? We live in the middle of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they take more risks and, they, and they, they borrow more and then they're likely to go bust. I suppose it doesn't even have to be a secret, right? Even if you yeah. know they've won the lottery, yeah. if you see them buying something nice, then you want to keep up. Yeah, totally. exactly. And I think, didn't one of the studies find that um, the neighbours would buy conspicuous goods? Because obviously you're buying goods that you want people to see. You want people mm. to know that you're doing as well as those neighbours who've won the lottery. So it said they'd they'd buy things like uh, cars, posh cars, but wouldn't spend money on indoor items like furniture. Just go and sit in the car if you need to sit somewhere. <laughs> Just empty barren homes, <laughs> seven Ferraris outside. Wow. So I guess it's statement making as opposed to, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. It nice. is. It's classic keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. yeah. And it's um, nearly a third of lottery winners declare bankruptcy, according to some estimates, isn't wow. it? Wow. It's amazing that. I think in America, winning the lottery sometimes doesn't mean winning the big prize. It can mean winning a, a smaller amount. They just still would call that winning the lottery. Whereas I think in Britain, if you say I won the lottery, you have to win over a million quid, I would say, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there, are, there are lots of studies. There's one which I found debunked saying that 70% of lottery winners go bankrupt, which I think there's not yeah, much evidence for because right. that's just too many. Um, but I found others saying that lottery winners are likelier to declare bankruptcy within the first five years after winning mm. the prize than the average American. Right. Because yeah. in the first two years, you're probably fine because you probably haven't spent all the money within two years. Yeah. 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 Um, I was reading about Britain's first ever lottery. Mm. So this was, this was over 450 years ago. This was um, in 16th century. And it was, uh, the prize was not just money. You'd got other items as well. So runners-up would, would have a prize. So you'd get gold jugs or linen. Um, and, the, and the lottery took three years to do. So you took three years oh, until it arrived. We're going to have to buy ourselves a gold jug because <laughs> next door have just got a really nice gold jug. But check this out. If you just bought the ticket alone and you didn't win anything, yeah. what that ticket did give you was a prize as well, which was you avoided any kind of arrest. 
You had a pardon <laughs> from being. You had a pardon no. if, as long as it wasn't murder and something that really was. You know, you'd you'd stolen someone's entire contents of their house, including their gold jugs. You <laughs> would have a pass on so being arrested. You take a chance and you get a get out of jail free card. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, That's is amazing. this this is Queen Elizabeth's, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So she set it up because she wanted to raise lots of money for shipbuilding, and I think the legal immunity only applied for a week. It was so seven days. Yeah. It was so that you could go <laughs> yeah. in, and it was it wow. was if it so it didn't count if you committed piracy, murder, felonies, or treason. <laughs> but you were, And it was so that you could go into towns and buy your ticket because she was desperate for people to buy tickets, wasn't she? And yeah. if you went in as a criminal and there was a wanted sign on the door, then people oh, would. Oh, wow. But it's like, a, it's it like a version of the purge. Like yeah. you have this everyone suddenly seven-day window. But that's of... what I was wondering. People surely didn't just buy it and then do something illegal, did they? That I'd, can't have happened. I'd steal another ticket. Oh, after seven, seven after days. seven days, nice. perpetual scam. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Lovely. But after you've stolen the ticket, I'm not sure you're immune anymore because then you've bought it. So I think you're just immune when you go in to buy it. Uh, so I think as yeah. soon as you committed that crime, they'd be uh, like, "We've got what we want out yeah. of you." There's one that was done, uh, which was in Sweden, which was a speed camera lottery. Um, and that was it was you would buy a lottery and it would use all the money that it was generating from people who were going past speed cameras and speeding and that okay. excess money. So it kind of turned it into a into a thing where you actively wanted to not get caught because you could then win the money uh, from people who were speeding. It was a sort of psychological. Oh, thing. Wait, if you were speeding, were you not eligible to win the speed camera fund? I think everyone was allowed to. Enter yeah, it. I think yeah. it must have been. Okay. You couldn't be excluded. So oh, yeah, you, yeah. you weren't incentivized to not speed. You were actually incentivized to speed, so that there was more fund in the lo- in the speeding lottery fund. <laughs> not so really. No, because you're only winning your own money, money back. Yeah. <laughs> you're, more, you're more incentivized to egg other people onto <laughs> yes. speed. Yes, yes. <laughs> Just everyone sat in a bus going faster, faster. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta put my kid through college. <laughs> um, we've mentioned, we've previously mentioned the dog poo lottery, haven't we, in Taiwan? I think we must have done it. We have Sounds like the once. kind of thing we would have mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You had to have a, a bag of dog poo to get a ticket. Oh, okay. Yeah. So is that incentivizing you to <laughs> make your dogs poo? It's incentivizing you to poo in a bag. What is really incentivizing? <laughs> Do you think they, che- they must have checked? I don't think they ran was... strict DNA checks <laughs> on the dog poo lottery. <laughs> Mr. Murray, we notice you don't actually own a dog. <laughs> And yet you've entered this 500 times in the last week. We have questions about your diet. Um, I was reading about the guy whose job it is to go around and tell people that they've won the lottery, oh, which I think might be one of the best jobs you can cool. have. Yeah. So he's in Britain. He's a guy called Andy Carter. And he basically is the person who goes to people's houses once they know they've won and asks what they want to do about it. Do they want to set up a bank account? Oh, they already have one. Do they want to put their money in it? Do they want to keep it under the mattress? That kind of thing. He doesn't sound very professional. <laughs> Every week he's like, you already have a bank account? Wow. I've got to get myself one of those. Um, yeah, he gives them various bits of advice and stuff. And he's, yeah, so he's called Andy Carter and he says that he often has to go in disguise, so he'll often have to go as like an estate agent because... <laughs> if I saw Andy Carter rocking up the road now, I'd be like, oh, that's him. That's and you'd No well, one knows what that, he looks like. But, yeah. why, but that would be great disguise. news if you saw Andy Carter walking up to you. But if you see him walking up to your neighbour, the point is that oh, 85% of people yes. keep their identity secret because yes. we're all such greedy yeah, bastards. but no one knows what Andy Carter looks like. No, but... <laughs> But they see us a big name badge, which I doubt he does. He usually dresses as one of those big lottery balls. He just has to cover that up with a cloak when he visits. You know, if a weird man walks up to your neighbour's door, 
you'll ask them who it I was. don't think anything about it. I don't, I don't know my neighbours. I live in London. I don't, I've never met most of my neighbours. Well, people are very nosy in the regions, I would, assume, I would assume it was one of my neighbours if I saw Andy Carter walking out of the house. Anyway, Andy did say he gets some quite weird people. People are so secretive. So he said once he had to go and organise the lottery wins with a man who was keeping it secret from his entire family and so he said he went he visited the man he said he was pacing around the room and asking me how long the visit was going to take as his wife had popped out to Tesco and he wasn't planning to tell her God. he reassured me they're perfectly happy very much in love she's just not interested in the money side of things wow, wow. that's pretty dodgy isn't it yeah, wow. that is those two are not together anymore <laughs> no. he does always bring his balls with him <laughs> <laughs> He says it's one of the first things people want to see. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now I think that I do see why he's in, you know, in disguise. Because if weird man's come to the door and they're saying, can I see your balls, please? Oh, it must be Andy Carr. <laughs> no, no, just the estate agent. This is how they sell things these days. Well, um, that's a good reason to want to win the lottery because I'd insist on meeting Andy Carter somewhere yeah. really weird and I'd ask him to come dressed as a particular thing <laughs> as well. To bring his balls. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not exactly. his balls anyway. Sorry, they're, they're not his. They're the lottery's balls. They, people always want to see a few example balls. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> Prove <laughs> your Andy Carter. <laughs> Show me your balls. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Um, anyway. uh, Robert Mugabe won the Zimbabwean national lottery in 2000. Just a fact. What were the chances? Um, Did you know that in 2014, 80% of donations to the Scottish pro-independence campaign came from one Euro Millions lottery winner? No. Unbelievable. Well, there's this couple called Colin and Chris Weir, and they got 161 million in 2011, and they, yeah, they provided 79% of the donations to that that campaign. That was money well spent, wasn't it? Wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, 10% of people who win more than a million pounds buy a caravan. Do they? Yeah. 10%. That's quite a high proportion. That is. It's so weird. I wouldn't have thought the cost of a caravan was super prohibitive. I wouldn't have thought you needed a million pounds to buy one. To buy the top end. But let's say you win a million quid. Mm -hmm. You could probably give up your job. Yes. You could. Yeah, you could give up your job, right? Yeah. Yeah. But probably you'd want to go on a lot of holidays mm. but you couldn't go on lots of massive really round the world gold plated aeroplane holidays for a million quid could you you're right so you have to have something where you can go on nice holidays yeah. but you don't have to pay a, a lot of money for you could it. live in a caravan until you died if you had a million quid it's the dream <laughs> living the dream well on giving up jobs i read a really interesting stat which is that 86% of American lottery winners, and this is people who've won the jackpot, so they've won millions, 86% of Americans stick with their jobs, whereas in the equivalent, in Britain, 41% do. Wow. Are, wow. We, are we much lazier? Would you, Anna? I'd be out of fear like a shot. <laughs> God, if I find a five-pound note on the street, then I'm <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that the 10th Correspondence Chess Olympiad 
which is done entirely by post, took so long to complete that the winners of both gold and bronze represented countries that no longer existed. <laughs> Pretty amazing. So, so funny. funny. So this is a competition that is still going uh, to this day. Um, I believe they're on the 21st, although online on Wikipedia it says they're on their 10th. So maybe there's a few different governing bodies. I think the ladies one is on its 10th, maybe. Is it? Right, okay. So here's the thing. The match that we're talking about with the 10th Correspondence Chess Olympiad, that started in 1987. And it takes years and years to finish the games and get to the final and have a winner. In fact, the 11th uh, Correspondence Olympiad started before the 10th even finished. They just get bored and they go, we got to get going. So the winners of uh, the 10th uh, in gold place was someone from the USSR. And in bronze was East Germany, both of which were dissolved countries by the time the winning, <laughs> the winner was announced in 1995. Uh, but these days, I think to- most tournament matches are limited to just only two and a half years. Yes. Yeah. So these days, if you're still going after two and a half years, then an independent arbitrator comes along and says, uh, I think you're winning. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> and um, it's amazing. So the system, the way it works is that you send a postcard to the person that you're playing against and you have three days to make your move and send another post par- postcard back. So they look at the dates on the postcard. But because of the mail taking so long in certain countries, you know, you might not receive it for weeks, months even. Uh, so it's very important, that little date that sits on the actual postcard itself. Yeah, so it's the date that it arrives is when you start, um, which you can just say that is whenever you want, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so people have noticed that if people are really struggling towards the end, that it seems to take a lot longer for the um, letters to arrive to them. Um, But then when you send it, that's when the post um, mark is, so you can't cheat that one, Mm. can you? Yeah. I really like the idea that you can use use help as well. So you can use books or magazines or the internet. You can use anything short of running the entire game through a chess software program, which is frowned on. (laughs) It is, and banned. Yeah. Uh, But it means that the better players... It's a slightly different skill to playing normal chess, isn't it? So if you play normal chess, there's time limits. Apart from anything, the person you're playing against just gets really bored (laughs) and doesn't want to play anymore. But in this, because there's not really any time limits, well, you say, you know, three days. It's You have um, 30 days for every 10 moves, so you could take, you know... 30 days or 20 days if on you want. one well yeah. that's but what can, I find yeah. I find that really worrying about this I think I would be extremely bad at it because it's a classic encouraging people to leave it to the last minute thing <laughs> yeah, you've got 30 days for 10 moves so I know I'd forget about it for 29.5 days and then suddenly you've got to send you know and 10, be 10 like, postcards I don't know yeah. if you've done your move yet I did mine days ago yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes James come on I've just got to do this other thing <laughs> I reckon it's more stressful there's a guy called Croydon H. Jarvis who took eight years to complete one move. <laughs> what? what? How? In, in his defence, it wasn't his fault. So he started, he was a British guy and he started playing correspondence chess with a German in 1931 and they played a lot together um, and then in the middle of one of their games the war interrupted. And yeah. That was, probably wasn't his fault. <laughs> no, it was inconvenient for them though. So they couldn't post during the war because postal service were interrupted and for two years afterwards they couldn't post to each other and then I think in 1948 he got a postcard from his opponent saying look mate are you going to finish this game or what otherwise I'm claiming victory it's amazing and lots of people even if the postal service wasn't affected they weren't allowed to do it because people thought they were codes didn't they Yes. I think um, there's even Humphrey Bogart was visited by the FBI because they thought he was sending um, secrets through postal chests I mean what secrets did Humphrey Bogart have access to he wasn't. He was an actor. Yeah, but he always played spies in movies, didn't I guess he? So, so yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, there was one guy called Graham Mitchell, wasn't there, who a load of postcards surfaced recently, which had bizarrely cryptic stuff. So he was uh, deputy head of, M- of MI5 in the 1950s, and mm. it's thought that he was corresponding, uh, using postal chess as a way of exchanging secrets wow. with the KGB. So it was reasonable that they would suggest that, then. Yeah, yeah although he oh. has been exonerated. That oh. is literally my personal opinion based on having read the postcards. <laughs> What did you get from the postcards? They just seem like you wouldn't write sentences quite like that. Instead of saying queen to D4, he would say queen to Balmoral on the 17th of April. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was a 19th century chess master called Joseph Blackburn who was arrested as a spy for sending chess moves through the mail um, because they thought they were secrets. Um, I really like him because he thought that drinking whiskey improved the brain. Uh, and every time he played chess, he tried to prove it. So um, he always <laughs> drank whiskey during every game. And according to the official records, he played more than 100,000 games of chess in his career. Wow. wow. Um, I've been looking at the chess records. So it's full of absolute great stuff, this Wikipedia page. It's really funny. But there was one which I really like, which is, you know, people play simultaneous chess. They play lots yes. of games yeah. at the same time. So I'm just going to read this out verbatim. The worst result in a simultaneous exhibition given by a master occurred in 1951 (laughs) when international master Robert Wade gave a simultaneous exhibition against 30 Russian schoolboys aged 14 and under. (laughs) After seven hours of play, Wade had lost 20 games (laughs) and drawn the remaining 10. That's a bad day, isn't it? Maybe he was letting them win their kids. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing. Um, So simultaneous chess is one very challenging form of chess. It gets more challenging if you're blindfolded playing it, Mm. which is a thing that people have done Mm. historically. And uh, this has been considered in history multiple times a really dangerous thing to do. So (laughs) blindfold chess has been... and You don't have to be blindfolded. You just have to be not able to see the board when you're making your moves. So it's about being able to memorise exactly the position of the board. Yeah, because you'd knock over the pieces, (laughs) wouldn't you? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, this is a thing... And it was quite popular in the 19th century. There are prominent blindfold chess players there are a couple called Morphy and Steinitz both have been played and they kept having these mental breakdowns and so it spread that it would give you brain fever and there's a lot of reports say the USSR banned displays in it in 1930 because it was so bad for your mental health because it was too challenging (laughs) Um, Kasparov's coach spoke out against it and said this is bad for you and so Kasparov never played it and it's thought that might be why so it's actually a really dangerous game because you have to hold the whole board in your head yeah. Don't you? You're not allowed to look at the board. No. But what if you? I just because obviously, some you might miss here, you know, a three for a four, and be playing a completely separate game to the game that your opponent thinks. I don't think you're going to miss here a three for a four, are you? Well, uh, I don't know. A D for an E, E four and D four. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. Is that so? Do they tell you if you've gone off board and you're just playing? (laughs) E (laughs) fifty (laughs) two to Z ninety one. Yes, I don't know. You must lose immediately, right? Otherwise, it can't be like I put that pawn on D. Four, and they it, go, no, yeah. you can't. That's an illegal move. And you're like, okay, what about the bishop to e5? No, sorry. You that's... lost the bishop ten turns ago. What are you doing? <laughs> and you also sunk my battleship. <laughs> okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that when they're about to be born, baby sharks sometimes pop their heads out of their mother's cervix before taking a look around, deciding against it, and retreating back into the womb. (laughs) 
what do they not like the look of? <laughs> Who knows? Just the world. Wow. Have, you can't say we haven't all thought at some stage in our lives. Wouldn't it be better to just revert back into the womb? <laughs> it's, that's horrifying. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so good. So, How many times can they do this? Will there be sort of a 10-year-old shark still in the mother's womb <laughs> with her going, you've got to come out sometime? <laughs> Well, we don't really know because people don't really know much about sharks, especially before they're born. Um, but this is quite a recent study by Kiyomi Murakama and Takaturu Tamita, um, who developed an underwater ultrasound machine and have been able to look at what's happening inside the body of a tawny nurse shark um, as she has some embryos. Mm. And this, and they found this out. There's a few other things. They found out that the um, shark, so sharks have two uteruses and the sharks like to swim between the uteri uh, yeah. and eat unfertilized eggs yeah the unfertilized brothers and sisters that's the mm. thing that happens that's so cool they're practicing they're doing their length before they come out of the womb which is super cool <laughs> yeah. and it sounds quite arduous because there's quite a thin tube isn't there connecting them a u-bend yes, connecting the two uteri and they squirm their way through it swimming between two different bits of the womb just to eat your yeah eat some eggs would-be siblings and yeah. they kind of there's always more than one shark I think they give birth usually to three or four and so sometimes all of the sharks will be in one of the uteruses eating all of the eggs and then they'll all migrate to the other uterus and then eat all the eggs there and do they eat each other or is that a different species it's of a shark? different species right. uh, these guys might do as well for all I know but that's um, sand sharks is yeah it? Uh, right. sand tiger sharks sand tiger sharks yeah, yeah. Um, I guess that's the thing though like you might be looking out the cervix just thinking is this another room inside mum and going and just because you've already oh, yeah. you've already found one room how do you know oh, yeah. massive yeah. <laughs> exactly. um sharks and eggs are really quite clever mm. so they recently discovered that they can react really well to predators even so a shark's laid an egg and it's sitting there and they've done ultrasound and they found out that if there's even so much as a vibration nearby or if something walks nearby that's emitting slight electromagnetic radiation then the embryo inside senses it and it completely freezes and it holds its breath because it knows that if it's even moving wow. its gills, then it's going to be giving off an electrical signal that the thing might be able to sense. That's so even amazing. in the egg. That's very cool. It can be scared. Yeah. Wow. Um, sharks, they have, they have teeth. <laughs> and they have different teeth all the time so we've got baby teeth and um, adult teeth but they shed their teeth throughout their whole life but this actually starts before they're even born so they have teeth in the womb embryonic teeth wow. and they lose those and they get more teeth so they like they lose their baby teeth before they're even babies so does yeah. the mother shark have a load of loose teeth rattling around in her womb well it seems like it might be that that might be true and also that this might have um, thrown like previous studies into um, disrepute because embryonic teeth of great white sharks are almost identical to adult teeth of sand tiger sharks so a lot of things that they thought were sand tiger sharks turn out to might turn out to be embryos of great white sharks it's oh. such a, they're having to check through them all now wow it's such a niche crisis in the <laughs> aquatic studies world <laughs> but yeah they have sharks can have up to 50,000 teeth in their life some of them shed teeth once a week which just must mean they are loaded tooth fairy wise <laughs> yeah. although I don't know where she'd leave it the money yeah. on the seabed on the seabed. Oh, yeah. lovely, very nice. Um, <laughs> it's weird. So we do know so little about birthing of shark. For example, a great white shark. We've never seen one 
be born ever. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's amazing. We've somehow just not managed to see that. Um, and uh, so occasionally aquariums and other such places studying um, these sharks get insight into ways that they give birth. And New Zealand, an aquarium, saw an amazing thing where there was a shark that was giving birth but was having problem with the birthing process. So another shark came up and bit its abdomen. And in the process allowed, it was basically a C-section, gave it a C-section and the little sharks were able to swim out and both the baby sharks and the mother shark survived Whoa. the incident. No. Yeah, so it was just, they were just witnessing some sort of bizarre technique. Wait, um, so it bit, an, another shark bit the abdomen open yeah. so that the so, things could escape. That is extraordinary. Yeah, it's weird, eh? That's, that's I also can't believe bizarre. they can do it well enough that the shark survived. You would have thought mm. if you're tearing open the abdomen of a shark to let its babies yeah. out. Yeah, you, and they didn't, they didn't even know that the shark was pregnant as well. So that was a huge surprise. They wow. just thought another shark was eating a shark, and then suddenly they were just performing. Could it be surgery. that they were just eating the shark, and it just so happened that there were some babies in there? <laughs> that that is possible. Yeah. 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 So sharks can have virgin births even if they are not virgins. No, they can't. They can, but isn't that by definition impossible? Not a virgin birth. So it depends. It's like how the Virgin defi- Mary, isn't it? Depends how you define a virgin birth. Mm. But in 2017, there was a leopard shark in Australia, which had previously mated with a male. And then I think they said, oh, we don't actually want any more sharks to be born. So they moved her into her own bit of the aquarium. And then she kept laying eggs like a chicken. <laughs> she laid the eggs like a chicken. Yeah, what, yeah. She was clucking. She and... clucked. She waggled her fins around. Um, no, she laid these eggs, just, you know, non-fertile fertile eggs, as they oh, thought. Oh, right, got it. Uh, but then some of them started hatching. So these were... Uh, clones basically of herself which she'd sort of switched from a sexual into an asexual mode that's never been observed before wow that's weird it's a fresh excuse for sorry my boyfriend climbed into my bedroom in the middle of the night and I didn't tell you isn't it (laughs) asexual reproduction I don't know how it's happened (laughs) Um, so that can I talk about Baby Shark the song yeah you've been waiting (laughs) so patiently well it's just because you say that they can have virgin birth so that means that there's no daddy shark first of all okay Um, it's gonna be another famous Harkin link isn't it (laughs) so I tweeted this a while ago and today when I was um, googling baby sharks for this podcast I found an article in the sun from September last year saying baby shark is being blasted over factual inaccuracies by boffins on the internet several Twitter users have taken to the site to point out the various ways that earworm has got biology wrong podcaster and QI researcher James Harkin no! pointed out <laughs> I had no idea that this this wow. was in the sun in September last wow. year and I had no idea that they quoted Wait, that what did you point out? I posted, pointed out two things. One, that um, sometimes there's no daddy shark because they... Does reproduce. it mention daddy sharks yes, in does. the song? Right. It also mentions um, grandma shark. Mm-hmm. And since great white sharks don't reach sexual maturity till their mid-30s and their maximum lifespan is around 70, mm-hmm. you hardly ever get grandma sharks in mm-hmm. nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, really and the sun picked it up. James, you absolute yeah. boffin. <laughs> Bla- I, I love it when you blast inaccuracies. <laughs> Oh, you've made it to the sun. I know. What an honour. An official sun boffin. (laughs) Oh, man. That's huge. I just got one last thing just to quickly mention. Uh, In 2018, there was a story which um, I'm annoyed that I missed for the book, but it was a shark got... Well, someone attempted to steal a shark from a San Antonio aquarium in Texas, um, and they did so by simply just taking it out of the water and dressing it as a baby in a buggy. (laughs) 
they um, did not dress it as a baby. Well, they put it in the buggy. They just put it in a buggy. <laughs> and, they, but, and they pretended that well, they, it was role play. dressing it as a baby. Yeah. A buggy does not count as baby clothes. <laughs> they dressed it as a naked baby. <laughs> They had it wrapped in a blanket. You'd wrap a baby yeah, in a blanket. Yeah. They put it in a bucket. You'd put, put a baby in a bucket. <laughs> and then they put the bucket in the buggy. How is fatherhood going down? <laughs> anyway, they were challenged on the way out. So well, I, don't, I don't think that's a baby in your... Yeah, buggy looks fine. Bucket looks fine. Hang on a second. Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James. That's James Harkin. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account at No Such Thing. We have a Facebook page as well, No Such Thing as a Fish, or go to our website, No Such Thing as a Fish.com. We have everything up there from previous episodes all the way to links to our upcoming tour of the UK. Please come along. It's going to be amazing. We'll see you again next week with another episode. Goodbye. Goodbye.